If it's imposing high-walled towers and impregnable castles you're looking for, or classic tales of heroes, rogues and double-crosses, or places to take the kids where they can fill their lungs and lose themselves in history and stories, imagining themselves as brave clansmen holed up and holding out in their ancestral fort with a mighty army camped at their gate. Here in the south of Scotland, you've come to the right place. You can just sort of imagine yourself to be a, a knight or a princess fighting dragons or the enemy, whichever one you want. You are in the master bedroom, which is the room we're in at the moment. You hear movement on the staircase and you come to investigate. The first thing you would do is you would grab your sword from behind the bed. It's where everyone yeah. keeps their sword. <laughs> Welcome to this latest episode of the Scotland Starts Here podcast, the second of this second series. I'm Dave Howard and it's great to be back with you as ever exploring all that the south of Scotland has to offer tourists and visitors. This time we are lowering the drawbridge and bringing up the portcullis to welcome you in to probably the most iconic and treasured structures of this sweeping landscape. It's castles, forts and towers, where legend, adventure and peril are always close by. People come to Claverick Castle for lots of different reasons. Some's for history, some's for family, but a lot of people just come for fun because it is sort of the ideal castle. It's got everything you're looking for. It's got your towers, your moat, your dungeon. How do you feel about kids clambering over the rocks? Is that allowed? Um, it's not allowed, yeah. no. <laughs> <laughs> we're not always there to witness it though. <laughs> and in this episode, we're also going to be helping you out if you're tracing your ancestry back to this part of the world. There's a very strong chance if you have the name Elliot or Kerr, Douglas, Scott or Hannay, Webb, Maxwell, Armstrong or Johnston in your family tree, that you are descended from the fearsome border reavers who held sway here in the south of Scotland for hundreds of years. I don't think they actually went out just to murder, although there were just the... byproducts. The <laughs> <laughs> There's a huge and growing fascination with tracing family heritage back to the Scottish borders and to Dumfries and Galloway. So if that sounds like you, stay with us because we'll soon introduce you to people who are passionate about helping you to unearth and trace that heritage. Sometimes it's just a name and a date of when they knew somebody was living in this area. Sometimes they can give us masses of information, but it's then that research that we put into each tour to find out as much as we can for those people before they, before they come across. But first, you certainly don't need a family connection to enjoy exploring and letting your imagination bring history to life. It sits on the Solway Firth, and was used as a sort of guard point into one of the trading routes into southwest Scotland. Valerie Bennett from Historic Environment Scotland is the manager of Calaverock Castle, just seven miles south of Dumfries. Its triangular shape is completely unique amongst British castles. It's got high corner towers and an impressive twin-towered gatehouse on its north side. This was the ancestral seat of the Maxwell clan, one of the south of Scotland's patchwork of powerful families. The castle was built about 1270 and it's replacing the ruins of another castle, which is in the woods just down the road. So it's not on the same site as the old no, one? No, this one's moved inland a little bit. If you go down to the old site, you'll find out why. It's a very boggy, wet site and there wasn't really any room to expand. So as the Maxwells got a bit richer, they moved inland and built this beautiful castle here. It's not on a hill. No, it's not, is it? 
which is often the case with castles. So it's it's is it defensible in other ways? It is, and it's you have to sort of think about geological timescales here because the landscape was completely different when they built it here. This bit of land was actually a finger of land surrounded by sea and bog, so it was actually very easy to defend. There was only one access, and that was from the north. In estate agent terms, we'd call it a bit of a fixer-upper. A, a bit of a fixer-upper. It has been ruined for a long time, though, so it's it's maybe a romantic ruin. Maybe that's the way to think of it. People have been coming here for hundreds of years just to see the romantic, ideal castle. It's still falling down, but safe. <laughs> <laughs> which, is, which is a crucial thing. Yeah. But Calaverock doesn't give up all its secrets at once, as Valerie is keen to demonstrate as we head down through the gate tower inside the castle walls. We're crossing the bridge over the moat. Today, the light's reflecting in the castle on the water. So it's almost like having two castles here because you can see deep down into the reflections. So another day, if you've got a camera, bring it. <laughs> Often the moats at these sorts of historic sites are, are filled in, aren't they? But Very often, if, they hadn't, if the castle hadn't been abandoned, we probably wouldn't have a moat because people would have expanded and expanded and expanded. So they used to fill in their moats and build on them. So actually, because it was abandoned in 1640, we've probably preserved a bit more of the actual beauty of the castle. Right, so it's like coming through a tunnel and then we come out into the courtyard of the castle. And we've got this beautiful Renaissance mansion, mansion in front of us. Wow. <laughs> so now we're looking at the Nithsdale Lodging, built much later than the original castle in the 1630s. It's a section of intricate Renaissance stone carvings, very different to those no-nonsense defensive walls we saw first. So ornate. So much work and time must have been spent making this a prestigious building. That's right. I mean, they started building it in 1270, but they were still building it in 1634. And in the 1630s, of course, the union of the crowns had already happened. We thought we weren't going to have any more wars. People started spending more money in building a mansion house. So what they did is, rather than going to a new place, they already had a lovely site. Inside the walls of the castle, they built a mansion. And that's what we've got here. And we've got some beautiful carved windows and door frames. So actually, for history lovers, that might be quite a useful thing to think about. If you see ornate carvings and time and effort put into a castle and its surroundings, that's a later castle or, or a later part of the castle that was built in, in peacetime. In more secure times. You're not going to lavish all this decoration on something you think's just for defensive purposes. And also here inside the castle walls waiting to chat to us, I'm pleased to say, is Leslie, a second brilliant expert here to join in our chat and really help us bring this spot and its story to life. Hi there, Dave. Yeah, I'm uh, Leslie Watson, uh, a true Dunhamer, born and bred in Dumfries and Galloway. Um, so Calaveric is my, my, local, uh, my local castle, if you like, and spend quite a bit of time here. And in fact, you said to me, in, in the emails we exchanged to set this up, you said, this is my castle. <laughs> I had missed out the word favourite. I did when I read it back. I thought that uh, you're going to wonder wonder who you're meeting today. But it is one of my favourite castles. It is my local castle. I uh, spent quite a lot of time here as a, as a youngster. And probably why my, my, my love of history uh, came about in the first place. So, Leslie, we're here on a very quiet, peaceful, sunny winter's day. I can hear some insects, I can hear some water sort of trickling. I'm guessing that's from the from the moat. It's quite hard to imagine what a thriving, bustling centre of activity 
this courtyard we're in would have been. Yeah, I think it would be quite easy to forget just what a turbulent history this castle had. And, and certainly in the 1300s, if we were standing in the same spot, I don't imagine that it would be as peaceful as it is, to, as today. Um, you know, this would have been a, a, a very noisy place especially when the English were camped outside in 1300. It would have been a very different atmosphere, very different noises we were hearing. Noisy, dusty, dirty. Yeah. Animals. Animals, yep. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's almost a castle of two halves. You know, when you walk up to the castle, you very much get that medieval style of this was a defensive fortress with a double gatehouse, you know, the double moat. It's once you, you take that journey through the archway that you, you come into this courtyard and see this magnificent Nistial lodgings behind us that was completed in 1634 during a, a more peaceful time in Scotland, if there ever was a peaceful time. And this by this point, this was the, the Maxwell's really building a, a, not a mansion, but a palace, a, a more comfortable way of living uh, at a more peaceful time uh, in Scottish history. They had a few feuds with some local clans as well. Probably the Johnston clan is the, the most famously known feud that the Maxwells um, had. And one thing I do like about the castle is there's a little bit of uh, medieval graffiti on the castle walls that we've walked past this morning. And a cheeky Johnston has, has engraved their name on the, on the front of the castle. But they had a, a long-standing feud. So Johnston was here? Is uh, Johnston <laughs> was uh, was definitely here and, and left, his, left his mark. But... Just because of where the castle is situated, it's had a real turbulent history. Um, you know, as you drive up to the castle, you, you know, when you're coming in the driveway, you can actually see England. So we're very close to the to the border. You know, as Valerie's already explained, the original castle built by the Maxwells first in 1220 was so close to the Solway, the body of water that, that we've named our company after, um, that it flooded so often. I mean, that's why this magnificent building was, was built 50 years later. But this was a, a guard point almost for, for southern Scotland, which then meant it was a real target for uh, for. Edward I of England when he decided to invade southern Scotland uh, from 1296. Edward brought up, you know, he had a, a mighty army and generally throughout the Wars of Independence he did always outnumber the number the Scots and came with more uh, heavily armoured uh, horsemen. And on this occasion there was only 60 Maxwells inside the castle and they did eventually have to, to surrender because they were eventually going to run out of food. To see the, the mighty English army camped out on the, the front of the castle must have been quite a sight. You know, during the Wars of Independence, the castle did change hands a number of times. Um, you know, it was taken back by Robert the Bruce when he became King of Scotland. There was then, after the Wars of Independence, a real peaceful time in history, whereas you can see the Maxwells then built more of a, a fashionable mansion, a, a home for them to, to, to live quite comfortably. But interestingly, they built that inside the walls of the original castle. Yes, uh, so the, the front is very much still the medieval castle, but when you come into the courtyard, which back then would have been, this would have been the busiest part of the castle that we're standing in now. This would have been where all the action was was happening. So that's where you want to put your, your fancy quite you know, elaborately decorated carvings where everybody is, is entering into the main courtyard of the building and so they can see it. The Maxwells were devout Catholics and by 1560, you're probably aware that the Scottish Reformation took place and, and they were, were one clan in southern Scotland who wanted to remain devout Catholics throughout that period of time and that's why in 1640 the Covenanting Army came and attacked the, the castle for the, for the last time. 
once that happened, one of the, the last things that the Covenanting Army did was to destroy that, that southern wall, really to make the castle indefensible so that it couldn't be taken back. Then since then, it lay in ruin until it was taken into state care, you know, in the early 1900s. But, and that's what Valerie was talking about. It then became this romantic ruin. It became very overgrown and people were coming to, to visit the castle to, to write, to draw pictures of it and, and to have that, that romantic idea of what, what it would have been like to live in a castle in medieval times. Now, the reason we do these Scotland Starts Here podcasts is to try to inspire visitors and just let them know about some of, particularly some of the hidden gems and the things that they can come and do in this part of Scotland, in the south of Scotland. What is the offer to visitors here? You can come, you can do your bit of history. We've also got a lovely augmented reality trail and there's 10 characters that you can meet as you go around the castle and grounds. Nowadays we've got QR codes that lead you to the artefacts that were found in the, the castle, so you can look at that. And you can just sort of imagine yourself to be a, a knight or a princess fighting dragons or the enemy, whichever one you want. And then we've also got lovely grounds around us that you can play a game. We've got junior jousting that you can play with if you've got little kids that want to pretend they're knights. We've got walks into the woods, takes you first of all to the, the site of the old castle that I told you about, but then you can actually get further down onto the nature reserve as well. And on a crisp, sort of clear, sunny day like today, I can't imagine wanting to be anywhere else, to be honest. Well, I've been working here 26 years and I don't ever have a day that I don't want to go to work, so it's really nice. <laughs> there's quite a nice cafe as well, isn't there? There is. Yes, there's a, a lovely cafe that features home baking and homemade soups and lovely coffees, so it's a nice warm spot. It's always important to know where your lunch is coming from. The cafe at Claverock really is fantastic, as they are at so many historic environment Scotland sites. Huge thanks to Valerie Bennett. Now, we've picked on Claverock Castle as just one example, but there are any number of brilliant sites to explore dotted across the south of Scotland. From the 13th century Hermitage Castle near Newcastleton, that's closely associated with the Elliot clan, to the magnificent and regal Fleurs Castle, built much later in the 1720s, and overlooking the Cheviot Hills and the River Tweed. And our very first Scotland Starts Here episode was called History, Heritage and the Border Reavers. You should go back and listen once this one's finished. And in that episode, Borders historian Mark Nicholl showed us Smalem Peel Tower, linked to the Pringle family and a big part of a young Sir Walter Scott's inspiration for wanting to tell Scotland's stories. So he was born in Edinburgh, Sir Walter, but he was brought down here to, to live with his grandparents at, at Smalham Farm there. And it was this tower here which really inspired Sir Walter to have this interest in border history. And because of this big foreboding dark tower that was right on his doorstep, he really began to look into the, to the history of the area and the stories associated with this place and the border reavers. And it really sparked this lifelong fascination and you know, storytelling from, from Sir Walter about, about this area. And, and it was really Sir Walter who brought the, the Border Reavers back to life, if you like. In that episode, we also found castles you can book as your accommodation and even sleep in a four-poster bed with a bird's-eye view of the River Tweed near Peebles in the very spot where Mary, Queen of Scots, is known to have slept. This is uh, Mary, Queen of Scots's room. So this is the bedroom and this is where people now stay. So people can go online and, and, you know, rent this property yeah. and sleep in this bed in the position. Or is this the actual bed that Mary, no, Queen of Scots would have actual, slept in? I wish it was, but no, it's not. I don't know. It's got 18th century end bits. And then I think the, the tapestry that they've put in at the top here 
probably is more like, you know, 19th century. But it's still, it's very cosy. And I'd like to reassure everybody has got a brand new mattress. Lulu Benson of Needpath Castle. As I say, do revisit our very first Scotland Starts Here podcast to hear more from her and more about the lives of the border reavers. Elsewhere, there's Drumlanrig Castle and Bowhill House, connected to the Douglas and Scott clans, and both now owned by the Duke of Buccleuch. Thirlstane is set in beautiful parkland near Lauder, while McClellan's Castle is in the heart of picturesque Kukubri. Threve Castle was built in 1369 by the excellently named Archibald the Grim of Clan Black Douglas. That one sits on an island in the middle of the River Dee. You have to get a boat to visit, and there's a very good chance of spotting hunting otters and osprey. But for the next part of today's episode, I promised at the start that we'd introduce you to people who can help you to trace your ancestry back to this part of Scotland. It turns out we've already met one of those people. It's Solway Tours tour guide, Leslie Watson. We should talk a bit about your business and about what you offer. I think a huge fascination, particularly for overseas visitors to this part of Scotland, is the clans and people's surnames. And, you know, we've talked a bit about the Maxwells here. There's the Armstrongs we're going to meet and the Hannays. And again, over on the, the other side of the country, there's the Elliot clan. These were iconic and still are iconic names in this part of the world, aren't they? Yeah, they're, they're iconic names. They're, you know, they were powerful clans. And I think people's interest in finding out a little bit more about their family history has really taken off in the last um, in the last few years. And I think there's lots of television programmes that have come on that I think are inspiring people a little bit more to go and delve back into their family history and to find out a little bit more about where they've came from and how, how people used to, to live back in the day. People that are listening now and thinking, actually, I'd like to do that, where would they start? How would they begin the process of, of organising that trip? You know, we certainly see see guests from America, Australia and Canada. And I think it's something that when you start to delve into your family history, it's something that could almost take over. It can be addictive, um, right? It can yeah. be addictive and it, it can be... It can be a real challenge sometimes, depending on how, you know, the further back you get in your family history, that the records are not as accurate. People will contact us with, you know, sometimes it's just a name and a date of when they knew somebody was living in this area. Sometimes they can give us masses of information, but it's then that research that we put into each tour to find out as much as we can for those people before they, before they come across. And that might mean using... You know, some of the great local resources that we have with the Dumfries and Galloway Family History Centre. We've got the York Library. It might be knocking on doors and farms, uh, local farms, and, and, and chatting to the people that now live there. And what we quite often find is that farms have been passed down through the generations and we're able to find out a little bit more about it. And that's what makes an ancestral tour, I think, a really special tour for people when you can take them back to the house where their ancestors lived in or the church where they were married in or just even sometimes to see the local area. And Leslie, before we finish up, how can people reach you to find out about setting up a tour? Please do get in touch. Um, Solwa Tours, we're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and we've got a website as well. That The first point of call is just to get in touch um, and then we can t- start the conversation there and start to really build a picture of your family history and then create a bespoke tour for you if, if, if that's something that you want to do. It was so great to speak to Leslie. Her passion and enthusiasm for the history of the south of Scotland is completely infectious. She said the name of her company already, but I'll just repeat it one more time. It's Solway Tours. Go and find them online. 
And we're sticking with the theme of enthusiasm for the rest of this episode. Later on, we'll meet someone who turned his life upside down to move here, specifically to be part of restoring his family's ancestral seat. But next up on Scotland Starts Here... I've driven about an hour from Calaverock to park up outside this smaller single stone tower. We're at Cannonby, near the picture postcard town of Langham. Now, it wasn't a giant leap to get here, just a small step. And that's a massive clue as to which world-famous clan name this tower is most closely associated with. Ian Martin, yeah, I'm the project manager here at uh, Gilnocky Tower. And we also host the uh, the Clan Armstrong Centre. Excellent. And also here... I'm Tom Jack and I'm the senior tour guide here. Looking at us, um, at our Scotch Tower House, it was to house one or two of the uh, the Armstrong family that moved from Liddesdale. Liddesdale is the valley that runs parallel to us, running north. That's where the Armstrong family actually started out. But uh, Gilnocky Tower was the, one of the first towers to be built in this area. So essentially what we're looking at here is a peel tower, the, the defensive home of the Armstrongs back when they were border reavers. Yes, when they were border reavers. The border reavers did cause trouble. And uh, both uh, the royalty on the English side and royalty on the Scots side of the border had difficulty controlling all these families. And actually, Tom... There are a number of sort of great names, the clan names from this area, Elliot's, Hannay, here we are at the Armstrong Tower. Those clan names, those great names, all started out as border reavers. Yes, they did. The Armstrongs were by far the strongest. It was said at one time that the Armstrongs could put more people together for a battle than any other two or three clans together. They were that strong. And we particularly hear about Johnny Armstrong, don't we? Yep, Johnny Armstrong of Gilnocky. Johnny was the leader, the forestay of the family, who more or less controlled this area. And he very much came to the attention of King James V. So he sent an invitation down here from Edinburgh, and he invited Johnny Armstrong to meet with him. And Johnny thought this was marvellous and he got dressed up in his finery with a lot of his followers. And so Johnny and his followers, probably something like 20 or 30 horsemen, they left here and they rode up the Esk Valley towards Edinburgh. And they got to a place called Carlingrig, which is about 20 miles north of here, just south of Hoek. And when he got there, he was ambushed by the king's army. And without trial or jury or any such thing, the whole army was strung up and just thrown in a pit. And to this day, Johnny Armstrong's grave lies at Carlingrig. Ian, it's just one example that, isn't it, of the the brutality and the the just harshness of, of life in this part of the world back in those days. Yes. What we have to remember is that uh, these guys, whatever whatever family it was, had to go out and raid and steal I don't think they actually went out just to murder, although there were the... Just to buy products. The, <laughs> the, I suppose there was the odd Saturday night that uh, there would be that type of thing going on. The only way that they could feed themselves was either to buy, barter, or steal. But they would share it with their kinfolks. 
Ian and Tom are justifiably very proud of the Clan Armstrong Centre here at Gilnocky Tower. As well as being incredibly knowledgeable tour guides, they've also been part of a painstaking renovation here since the 1970s. You come into the ground floor, as you can see now, it's been set up as a modern reception area and gift shop because it's a visitor centre. But if we go back into the day of the 16th century, this would be the storage area. But one important thing would have been in here, and that would have been one of the ponies. That would probably have been kept in here. And the reason for that is it would have allowed a fast exit from the building if the building had been under attack or if there was a need to send a message or send a messenger, there would have been a pony stabled in here ready to go. And the other thing you've got to bear in mind is that in a building like this, it wouldn't just be what in the modern towns we call a normal family, mum, dad and 2.4 children. There would be numerous generations of the family in the building. There could be 20 to 30 people lived in this building. Behind us here, there's a, a spiral staircase. I'm guessing that's the next direction. It's a very narrow winding staircase. Oh yes. And you come in here and the wood burner's on. What you've just come up is from the ground floor to the first floor, you've come up a right-handed spiral staircase. And I emphasize the fact that it is right-handed. There is a reason for that. Just bear it in mind and it will be explained further when we go up to the next floor. Okay. What you're in now in the first floor is the grand hall or the grand dining room. And this by and large would have been the main quarters, main living quarters. The big fire, there would always have been an animal on a spit on there. Light within the room would come from candles. And these candles uh, would probably be no more than beef wax. So that would give off a stench. And that is why things like lavenders and floral grasses would have been strewn across the floor. This could have had, as you say, 20 or 30 people mm, with this quite, as their main living easy. space. At yeah. any time. Yeah. At any time. You'd be pretty cramped, wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah. In the fireplace, you'll see uh, there's an archway there. We think that that was used for removal of waste or even for the, the timber and thing coming into the building because it practically be impossible bringing it up that narrow spiral staircase. So it's interesting to hear that there's quite a lot that's kind of unknown. Oh, there's a huge amount that's absolutely unknown. As you go up the building, you'll see so many different things that you stand and look at and say, what's that for? I've actually started a PhD, and what I want to be able to do is to nail down on paper exactly how these towers were built, in particular this one. These little things are really of interest. Let's go further on up, because you were saying there are more mysteries to unravel. Back up to the spiral staircase, up to the second floor, we come to the reason for the right-handed spiral staircase. What I'm about to do now is to step over the trip step, and there is a reason for it. <laughs> is it for hapless radio producers to fall? Imagine, if you can, you were in the master bedroom, which is the room we're in at the moment. You hear movement on the staircase and you come to investigate. The first thing you would do is you would grab your sword from behind the bed. 
where everyone yeah. keeps their shop. <laughs> As you arrive at the entrance, you meet the intruder coming up the stair. Your sword is in your right hand. You come out to meet the intruder coming up the stair. He forces you back. Now the natural thing for him to do is to look up. So he is only looking at you from the waist upwards. You back off into the room to defend your wife and child. He comes in to try and get to you. He doesn't see the step on the floor. He trips over it. Gives you the moment to take advantage of the situation and beat him off. Yeah. Now the reason it's right-handed in this particular tower is because the Armstrongs, by and large, were right-handed. If you were to come into a tower that had been built originally by the Kerr family, the spiral staircase would have been left-handed. The Kerrs, by majority, were left-handed people. Goodness. That was a story worth waiting for. Thank you. So, from the master bedroom, it's back onto the narrow spiral staircase and up another floor. Minding the trip step. <coughs> ah, now, as I come into this room on floor four, I see an enormous Stars and Stripes American flag. And anybody who knows anything about the name Armstrong, and also who sees the astronaut in the giant picture up there, there is a connection, isn't there, between Clan Armstrong and the first man on the moon, Ian. A portion of this room is uh, used as a Neil Alden Armstrong exhibition. Really, the artefact that stands out is the footprint of Neil Armstrong's boot. We have friends uh, at uh, NASA. They managed to get the, uh, the footprint for us, and it's cast into a, a resin mix. This tartan here, which is the, the lunar tartan, uh, this was manufactured in 1972 to celebrate Neil Armstrong coming to, uh, to Langham. Were either of you here when Neil Armstrong and his wife visited? Yes, I, I was. He came down here after the, the lunch and went up the spiral staircase that you've just come up and uh, onto the uh, walkway. And in a few moments, you'll stand uh, in Neil Armstrong's footsteps. Well, not, not the famous ones, but yes, yeah. <laughs> some of his footsteps. Some. And Tom, to hear about Neil Armstrong's visit here, yes, he's very famous, one of the most well-known names in the world, but he's just one of many, many people from around the world who can trace their heritage back to this part of the world and who are fascinated by coming here, aren't they? Yeah. The sign outside this building says Gilnocky Tower, Clan Armstrong Centre, the home of the Armstrong clan. And that's what it is. No matter where they are in the world, we know we have Armstrongs in America, we have them in Canada, we have Armstrongs in Australia, New Zealand, we have got Armstrongs, quite predominantly, believe it or not, in South America. Oh, wow. And when they come here and they meet you and you show them around the family home, the ancestral pile, how do they respond to that? How do they react? How are they in that moment? I have seen tears being shed by grown men. I say, are you all right, sir? I'm fine. I'm just emotional that I've come home. We had one example, must be about 18 months ago, and he came with his young son. 
I showed him through the building and he was quite taken by it. And then when he got back downstairs, he says, now, can I lay the ashes of my father? And he explained to me that his father had died some months previously and been cremated. The majority of his father's ashes were laid in the cemetery in America. But he kept a very small casket and he brought them back here. And he spread his father's ashes on the grass outside the building. And I saw him afterwards before he left. I said, is everything all right with you, sir? He says, yes, I'm quite happy. He says, and my father will be happy now because he's come home. That's a wonderful story. And I think to broaden it out, that's what this building means to the Armstrongs. If you're a Douglas or a Kerr or an Elliot, there are equally similarly important and memorable landmarks and locations across the south of Scotland. Absolutely. Each and every one has its own place, its own home. Each family has its home for its folks. We'll be back with Ian and Tom one last time before we finish up this episode, but we've got one last visit to make first, to meet someone who came to see his ancestral home, but ended up building his life around it. This is the gateway heading into Sorby Tower in Galloway. And this is the ancestral home of the Hannah or Hannay clan. And I think waiting for us here will be a member of that clan. Steve. Hello, Dave. Steve. Hannah, in fact, is that right? Steve Hannah, indeed. First and foremost, let's uh, just clarify that you can, your name can be spelt in a number of different ways, Hannah. So it can be spelt H-A-N-N-A, which is my spelling, with a Y on the end, which is the way the clan have it. So it's Clan Hannay Society, or Hanny, or Hannah with an H on the end. But all of those surnames... All are one way or another warmly welcomed to Sorby Tower. Le- leads as you our here to Sorby Tower, Tower. Yes, yeah. indeed. And actually, I've come from um, the Armstrong Centre, and the two people I spoke to there were telling me that it doesn't matter how many generations back you last lived here, if you've never set foot in the UK before, it can be a very powerful feeling to come to your ancestral home. It was just you saying powerful feeling there Dave actually uh, the hairs on the back of my neck start to stand on end. I remember very well when I walked up this path just the early 2000s yeah the anticipation of seeing the tower for the first time the emotions just pouring uh, through you really. That first visit 20 years ago had a huge impact on Steve such that he moved from Liverpool to Galloway to throw himself into driving forward renovation of Sorby Tower. He also, by arrangement, offers tours to visitors. The mound that sits behind you is the oldest part of the site and this is uh, Sorby Mott. And this would have had a wooden fortification on top of it. Then we go through the mists of time here as we walk up the track towards Sorby Tower. You go from sort of the 12th, 13th century through to the 15th and 16th century with uh, Sorby Tower as you see now. I hope you don't think I'm being disrespectful if I say that um, it's not in as good repair, shall we say, as, as some of the other castles and towers around the place? Um, it's, it's not at the moment. No, you're quite right. You've got um, big plans. 
Uh, we do have big plans. If we don't have big plans, where, where will we be? Yeah, our, our plan is to completely restore the building to its former glory. I'm going to take you inside now. How would you like that? Perfect. <laughs> Especially as it's raining. Especially as it's raining. So here we go. Watch your head. So this is the original kitchen the Hannahs would have cooked. A lot of people are shocked when they come in that, um, that we do light the fire. But uh, I think just the, the smell of the smoke and the look of the flame, it just gets, you know, your, your, your juices flowing as to what it would have been like in this kitchen. But it's, it's not about just being talking about history as uh, the past. We need to cook history too, and, and you can do that in here as well. So Sorby's going to have a future, so we'll be doing uh, medieval cookery lessons uh, in and around this very fireplace. Steve, you mentioned earlier about the hair standing on the back of your neck when I asked you what it means to a Hannah or a Hannah to, to come here. Yeah. What's your story? You first came here 20 years ago, is that right? My first visit here was 20 years ago, but my dad actually was brought up by um, the Fitzgerald side of the family. And that's another story, of course, in, in Ireland. Um, they were from Ireland. Whereas uh, it was, a, it was a, we we're on holiday in about 1978, and we were up in the Highlands. And um, of course, as a wee boy, I'd probably been eight or nine years of age then. And uh, yeah, the first thing you want to be able to do is, is find your clan, find your tartan. And um, we're walking through a market there in Inverness, and I remember it like it was yesterday. And Dad says, um, there's your clan crest. And he didn't say anything else. That was it. It just went right to my, my heart. And it's very difficult to explain what that meant. That was it then. I secretly wanted to know more. But my dad wasn't brought up by the Hannah side of his family, so it's really difficult to, to ask that sort of question. Dad's still alive, of course, and, and I'm now telling him about his uh, Hannah history. So it, that was, uh, as I say, the late 70s, and it took until the internet and all the rest of it. It was so much easier to trace your family tree. And that started to lead us to Sorby Tower. And then, of course, that, that visit here uh, all those years ago, it just, as I say, the hairs on the back of my neck were standing on, on end. I just, I couldn't wait to get inside. Uh, life changed for me that day. I just had to get involved with with, um, with Sorby Tower and, and my quest is to see it restored. A big part of Steve's quest, as he calls it, along with other clan members, has been a significant fundraising drive to pay for those renovations, including a visit to New York for an awareness-raising drive as part of Tartan Week, an annual celebration of Scots culture. I never thought we'd be walking down uh, Fifth Avenue in New York uh, to get the crowds going as the Hannahs march down Fifth Avenue was just uh, mind-blowing for me, really, I suppose. You know, here are the Hannahs <laughs> in the United States, and of course there are a lot of Hannahs in the States and Canada. And to be there with them and marching alongside them was just absolutely fantastic, you know. Yeah, so this is the this is the Grace Hall. You can see where the floors would have been. We will indeed, hopefully one day, reinstate the main fireplace. And this would have been a room where song and dance, poetry, all those sorts of things would have gone on in here. So again, that's what I want to bring. I want to bring this to life again. I don't want to talk about the past all the time. 
I want to do it, you know, want to do it today uh, and do it in the future. So that's how I see this room, long benches so we can feast around it, but also so we can pack those away and so we can dance in here once again. And Steve, anybody who wants to contact you to find out about visiting the tower or just to find out about the Hane clan generally, what do they need to do? How can they do that? Probably the easiest way, really, wherever you are, is, is uh, you know, going on to clanhane.org uh, through, through our website, Sorby Tower Facebook page, that's me. If I can meet and greet them here, I can indeed give them that personal tour. That, for me, is an honour to, to be able to do that. It's one of the reasons why I moved here. Steve, best of luck with the restoration. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dave. It's been a great pleasure. Have to be careful. Be careful when you're coming. Yeah. Oh goodness me. Okay. So we're stooping right down. Oh, up and over. A small sort of step. And we're out. I said we'd come back to the Clan Armstrong Centre with Ian and Tom for one last visit. I perhaps didn't make clear that we'd be standing high up here on the roof. But here we are at the top of the tower on a walkway. Slightly uneven surface underfoot, so I'll be a bit careful. Would this walkway have been used by lookouts, Tom? Yes, it would have been used by the lookouts, but you wouldn't have had the safety rail. It would have been over the edge. The other thing I'd like to point out while we're up here, is if you look up at the top of the gable end, you see that large block of stone Within that is brackets that will hold a beacon, or a flame beacon. And that was used as a means of signalling. And when there was a message to be sent out from the house, a servant would have been sent up to here. He would have climbed up these very narrow steps and set fire to a combination of beacons. And the flame, or the smoke, would have told the other family members out in the field some sort of message and they would have reacted to it. And the other point to bring to your attention is if, if you would like to take two steps forward and stand at the point that I'm pointing to, uh -huh. you are now standing on the very point that Neil Armstrong stood on the 11th of March 1972. Excellent. He looked out from where you are, he looked out across the land he looked up the valley back towards Langham and declared that he had come home. And he had? And he had. And he had. There's no question of it. He had. Yeah. He sent shivers down my spine. One last thing before we leave you this time. While we were on the roof of Gilnocky Tower, I raised with Ian something that I'd been told about him ahead of my visit, that he might be up for singing for me the Ballad of Johnny Armstrong. Oh, not to sing, not to sing. I think somebody's been pulling your leg. <laughs> Either I got my wires crossed or Ian got a bit shy in the moment, but he did do the next best thing. The Ballad of Johnny Armstrong. There's an old man who's unfortunately gone and moved on now. Willie Beatty. He lived in Cannonby. And he used to sit in his doorstep at night and he sang the ballad in Old Scots. If you so desire, I can send you a couple of verses of his voice. It is absolutely magical. I'd love that. I'd love to include that in the programme.
Some speak as all, some speak as all ears, and sick like men, who high degree of a gentleman. I sing a song, sometime called of Gilnoki. It's the story of uh, a, a, a river, a very bold river, his way of life. Elliot's and Armstrong's did convene. They were a gallant company. We'll go and meet our royal king and bring him safety, Gilnoki. The preparations for his uh, meeting with the king's men at Moss Paul, which is 20 miles up the road type thing. James V. As Tom was saying earlier, uh, we'll just have none of his nonsense. He dealt with them. I was trying to be nice about it. He hanged them. John murdered was at Kirland Rig. We are his gallant company. But Scotland's heart was ne'er say we to see ceremony, brave men deep. Allegedly, one of Armstrong's men, whether it be kinfolks or otherwise, escaped or was let loose to tell the story. But that's come down through the ages. As, that's come as down the through the ages, yes, it's come down through the ages. When Johnny lived on the border side, none of them dare come near his heart. So as ever, thanks again for joining us for this latest Scotland Starts Here. Don't leave it there. Get online. Start planning your own trip to the south of Scotland. You can peer over battlements and imagine yourself as a wild border reaver. Or even start researching your genealogy back to this part of the world. The very best place to get started with that is scotlandstartshere.com and the Scotland Starts Here app that you can download for free to your smartphone. There's a dedicated section of old songs and ballads. Scotland Starts Here is also on social media. You'll find inspiring pictures and destination tips. Once again, huge thanks to Borders singer-songwriter Evie Archenhold. This is her song called A Thousand Miles Away. You're probably well familiar with it by now. Thanks also to Jack Fillimore and Karis Wall, who helped with the production of this episode. And as ever, please rate and review Scotland Starts Here wherever you get your podcasts and share these episodes with anyone you think should discover the south of Scotland. Next time, in our Families Outdoors episode, we're particularly focusing on activities for all the family that will get everyone active, outdoors and in the fresh air. It's going to be another good one. We'll see you then.